Hello and welcome to the September 7th, 2021 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm looking forward to giving you a quick overview of new material published since our last podcast. The first article I'll highlight reports a population-based cohort study that found that after adjusting for testing frequency by age group, younger men may be at higher risk for SARS-CoV-2 infection than previously thought. Researchers from the Dalai Lama School of Public Health at the University of Toronto and the Canadian Institute of Health Research studied data from Provincial Ontario Health Database to determine whether differential testing by age group would explain observed variation in incidence of SARS-CoV-2 infection. The researchers found that disease incidence and testing rates were highest in the oldest age group and markedly lower in those younger than 20 years, regardless of sex. After adjustment for testing frequency, infection rates were lowest in children and in adults 70 years or older, and markedly higher in adolescents and in males 20 to 49 years compared with the overall population. According to the researchers, these findings are important because they suggest that younger men may be an underrecognized source of transmission of SARS-CoV-2 infection. Next is a randomized trial that found that treatment completion was higher among persons with HIV infection who were assigned a shorter course of rifampamine isoniazid therapy to prevent activation of tuberculosis compared to those taking a longer course. Tuberculosis preventive therapy for persons with HIV is effective, but its durability is uncertain. Researchers from South Africa hypothesized that among persons with HIV receiving antiretroviral therapy, treatment completion of weekly rifapentine and isoniazide for three months would be superior to six months of daily isoniazide and that annual weekly rifapentine and isoniazide for three months would be more effective than a single round. The researchers randomly assigned 4,014 persons with HIV who were receiving antiretroviral therapy and did not have active tuberculosis to receive weekly rifapentine isoniazide for three months, given either annually for two years or once, or daily isoniazide for six months. Participants were screened for tuberculosis at 0, 3, and 12 months of each study year. Treatment completion rates as well as the effectiveness of the different regimens were compared. The researchers found that tuberculosis preventative therapy with short course for three months was associated with much higher treatment completion rates compared with standard daily isoniazide for six months. In settings with high tuberculosis transmission, a second round of short course tuberculosis therapy one year later did not provide additional benefit. Next is a cohort study that found that class one HLA evolutionary divergence of the donor predicts acute or chronic rejection of a liver transplant. This prognostic marker can be found rapidly at no additional cost and has the potential to orient donor selection and guide immunosuppression following transplantation. Organ rejection depends on HLA proteins expressed by donors and recipient cells, which are variable between individuals and thus are different between donors and recipients. Compatibility means that the more the HLA proteins are similar between donor and recipient, the less likely the organ is to be rejected. The class one HLA evolutionary divergence is a continuous metric quantifying the differences between two homologous HLA alleles and reflects the breadth of the immunopeptidome presented to or by the immune cells. 
Researchers from Paris, France studied health records for 1,154 adults and 113 children who had a liver transplant between 2004 and 2018 to assess the potential association of donor or recipient HLA evolutionary divergence on liver transplant rejection. They found that class one HLA evolutionary divergence calculated from the HLA alleles of the donor had a much stronger influence on liver transplant success than HLA compatibility. The higher the class one HLA evolutionary divergence of the donor of liver graft, the more frequent rejection, and this was completely independent of the HLA compatibility of donors and recipients. These findings suggest for the first time that a donor-dependent biomarker can predict allograft rejection. New data published in Annals on August 31st suggests that even one glass of alcohol can immediately and substantially increase a person's risk for atrial fibrillation. The strength of the study lies in the fact that alcohol consumption was measured using real-time and objective methods, eliminating recall bias or errors in self-report and allowing for the first assessment of temporal relationships. Atrial fibrillation is the most common cardiac arrhythmia. Long-term alcohol use has been associated with the development of atrial fibrillation, and avoiding alcohol has been associated with reduced atrial fibrillation events. However, the specific and near-term relationship between drinking alcohol and atrial fibrillation is difficult to determine because of how commonly alcohol is consumed. Researchers from the University of California, San Francisco, studied 100 adults with intermittent atrial fibrillation who drank an average of one drink per month to determine if drinking alcohol increased the risk for a near-term and discrete atrial fibrillation event. Participants wore an electrocardiogram monitor to record the time and length of each episode of atrial fibrillation and an ankle monitor that passively recorded their alcohol consumption. Four weeks, the researchers compared the number of episodes of atrial fibrillation and whether or not the episodes were preceded by alcohol intake. They found that of the 56 participants who had an episode of atrial fibrillation, it was about twice as likely that they had had alcohol in the four hours prior to the episode. The association was slightly more with more drinks, but it decreased with longer time frames. According to the researchers, these findings are broadly relevant given that alcohol is the most commonly consumed drug in the world. These data suggest that the likelihood a given atrial fibrillation event will happen is not due to chance alone, but is influenced by modifiable risk factors. Next is a randomized trial that found an easy-to-implement tailored intervention increased participation in advanced care planning in an outpatient setting. This is important because advanced care planning remains underutilized. The STAMP program addresses gaps in existing programs and promotes engagement through a brief assessment followed by feedback reports tailored to the individual with supplementary informational brochures. Researchers assigned 10 pairs of primary and selected specialty care practices to either usual care or the STAMP intervention to compare the effect on engagement and advanced care planning. The researchers compared completion of four advanced care planning activities at six months between the two groups. They found that patients in the intervention group were more likely to participate in advanced care planning activities, and because the intervention can be delivered using the web and by telephone and mail, it is a feasible approach to increase engagement in advanced care planning. In a new commentary, Dr. Paul Allwarter of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine reminds us deaths and hospitalizations from the current COVID-19 pandemic are only one impact of SARS-CoV-2. 
post-infection health and economic consequences may last long after the worst of the pandemic passed, as up to 61% of patients have experienced symptoms that persist for months after COVID-19. According to the author, these consequences will affect even those who have never had COVID-19 with spillover effects not only on postponed health care and prevention, but socioeconomic disruption that may prompt anxiety, depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Even if only 10% of patients experience persistent symptoms after acute COVID-19, the number of those affected will easily be in the tens of millions. The author believes that research designed to address these post-infection sequelae should be a high priority. The next article to highlight reports a prospective cohort study that found that nearly 90% of immunocompromised patients taking glucocorticoids or other immunosuppressive therapy had an antibody response following SARS-CoV-2 vaccination. The response was about a third as strong as that of participants with healthy immune systems, but suggests that vaccines do offer some protection to this high-risk group. Researchers from Washington University and University of California, San Francisco, recruited 133 adults with confirmed chronic inflammatory diseases and 53 immunocompetent volunteers to receive an mRNA vaccine for SARS-CoV-2. Participants provided blood samples within two weeks before receiving the first dose of the mRNA vaccine and within three weeks after receiving the second dose. The researchers measured each participant's antibody levels and counted the number of antibody-producing cells in their blood samples. All patients stayed on their prescribed drug regimens, except for three whose medications were paused within one week of immunization. The researchers found that about 9 out of 10 immunocompromised participants developed antibodies in response to vaccine, although the response was weaker than those in the healthy group. Participants taking glucocorticoids and those taking B-cell depleting therapies were at the highest risk for not developing an antibody response. According to the researchers, these findings should encourage immunocompromised patients to get their COVID-19 vaccine. The CDC recently recommended a third dose of vaccine for this patient population, hoping that a third shot could elicit an even stronger response. Colleges planning a return to pre-COVID campus activities without broad vaccination coverage or other aggressive safety measures in place could put students and staff at substantial risk. A modeling study published on August 31st found that vaccination level will be the single most powerful determinant of campus safety this fall. According to the authors from Yale School of Public Health, Colleges that can achieve vaccination rates higher than 90% may safely return to normalcy with minimal additional distancing, masking, or testing. To help college administrators design and evaluate customized COVID-19 safety plans, the researchers developed a dynamic model using a modified susceptible, exposed, infected, recovered framework for a hypothetical population of 5,000 students, faculty, and staff living and working within close proximity of a college campus. The model captured essential features facing college decision makers, including the epidemiology of SARS-CoV-2, the natural history of COVID-19 illness, and the availability and accuracy of testing technologies. The model also considered decision maker values and preferences. Under base case assumptions, the model showed that if 90% coverage can be attained with a vaccine that is 85% protective against infection and 25% protective against asymptomatic transmission, the campus activities could safely be resumed while holding cumulative cases below 5% of the population without the need for routine asymptomatic testing. With 50% population coverage using such a vaccine, 
A similar cap on punitive cases would require either daily asymptomatic testing of unvaccinated persons or a combination of less frequent testing and resumption of aggressive social distancing and other non-pharmaceutical prevention policies. Based on these findings, the authors say that college administrators planning a return to pre-COVID campus activities without either broad vaccination coverage or high-frequency asymptomatic testing and aggressive distancing, masking, interventions are placing their students and staff at risk of widespread viral transmission. Even with high vaccination rates, the authors warn that administrators should remain prepared to reinstitute or expand testing and distancing policies on short notice. An outbreak investigation performed by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the California Department of Public Health, and the Orange County Healthcare Agency found that active surveillance and prompt infection prevention support is crucial to stopping the spread of Candida auris. Candida auris is a multi-drug-resistant fungus that can rapidly spread in healthcare facilities, especially in ventilator-capable skilled nursing facilities and long-term acute care hospitals. Prevention is critical since up to 10% of patients who become colonized with C. auris develop invasive infections, with all-cause mortality rate being 30 to 60%. Andida auris persists in healthcare environments and is easily transmitted through medical devices, ventilator-capable skilled nursing facilities, and long-term acute care hospitals face substantial infection prevention and control challenges and thus are high-risk settings for introduction and transmission of Candida auris. Once the first case of this emerging pathogen was detected in Orange County, California in early 2019, public health investigators became concerned that Candida auris might already be present in other local healthcare facilities, but not yet detected. In response, they assessed the prevalence of Candida auris in all adult ventilator-capable skilled nursing facilities and long-term acute care hospitals in Orange County through point prevalence surveys for skin colonization as well as post-discharge testing. To control transmission of Candida auris, they also assessed infection prevention and control practices at all facilities and provided guidance on any gaps identified. In the first round of testing conducted in May, they identified that Candida auris had already spread silently in the county. 44 patients were colonized with C. auris in all three of the long-term acute care hospitals in Orange County and six of the 14 ventilator-capable skilled nursing facilities. Assessment of facilities infection prevention control practices identified gaps in hand hygiene, transmission-based precautions, and environmental cleaning. By October 2019, a total of 182 patients were found to be colonized, identified through repeat point prevalence surveys for Candida auris at high-risk facilities. However, this rigorous surveillance and support provided by public health officials enabled containment of Candida auris to two facilities. Profit motive in medicine may contribute to a bloated, complex, and fragmented healthcare system, according to a new American College of Physicians policy physician paper. The American College of Physicians recommends that the principles of professionalism and medical ethics should ensure medicine retains a patient's over-profit orientation and protects the patient-physician relationship. The authors explore how commercialization of the healthcare system can create conflicts of interest and fracture patient trust. Emerging trends such as consolidation, mergers, and integration in the healthcare sector could have positive results like enhanced collaboration or negative ones like higher prices for patients.
While the paper cautions against the potential harms that could be caused by corporate interests and influence in the healthcare sector, it does specify that profits are not inherently a negative. ACT says that physicians, hospitals, and other healthcare organizations can and should earn a reasonable income as long as they are fulfilling their responsibility to provide high-quality patient care. The paper provides recommendations for protecting a patient's over-profit orientation. Climate-related health problems are a real and growing problem. A new commentary suggests that climate change has implications for every specialty in internal medicine and almost every patient. The paper calls for the medical community to do their part to reduce their own contributions to greenhouse gas emissions while treating the harmful effects of rising temperatures in clinical practice. According to the authors, collective action must occur at all levels, including within health systems and health policy entities. At the patient level, interventions in clinical practice include identifying and minimizing a patient's vulnerability to changing weather patterns, especially for those most at risk. The population level fostering increased partnerships between the medical and public health communities is essential. Increased research funding is also critical to create an evidence-based path forward. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you go to annals.org to take a closer look at some of the new articles I've highlighted and to browse older articles that you may have missed. There are ample opportunities to earn CME and MOC credit if you did. Take care of yourselves as well as your patients and come back in two weeks for more Annals Highlights. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.